Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and welcome to Master Leadership, where we connect with leaders worldwide to gain insights on important topics to help us on our journey towards greater significance. If you would like to participate as a guest, or if you have a question that you would like to ask a guest, go to masterleadership.org for more information. Brendan Baker is the author of the bestseller, Valuable Change, and has consulted on over $10 billion worth of transformational change projects across a wide range of industries and organizational sizes. He is the founder and managing director of Valuable Change Company, a management agency that helps leaders keep transformation simple and ensures it pays off. Their clients include high-growth tech firms, well-known Australian household names like AGL and South32, and all three levels of the Australian government. For many organizations, change often involves long meetings, lots of reports, confusion about the goals, and worry about how long it will take and how much it will cost. These complexities make 85% of change initiatives in companies worthless. Brendan has over 12 years experience in change management and believes the profession has overcomplicated change management approaches. He has taken it upon himself to simplify it and in doing so helps change leaders drive real value. He is also the author of the number one new book release across multiple categories, Creating High Value PMOs, which outlines the key reasons project managers keep failing and how they can break out of their administrative death cycle. Our interview will begin right after messages from our sponsors. Have you been wanting to launch your podcast and just haven't found the right resources? I launched Master Leadership Podcast in 2016, and it now ranks in top 1% globally. I've gathered all I've learned and created Master Your Podcast in a Weekend course on Master Your Swag app so that you have everything you need to share your voice with the world, minus those excuses. So download Master Your Swag app on Google or Apple platforms to access the Master Your Podcast course and launch your podcast this weekend. Welcome, Brendan Baker. How are you? I am well. How are you? You are doing well and you're calling from down under. What time is it there? It's not too bad. It's 6 a.m. here. Uh, Oh, so you're in my future, my friend. (laughs) I am coming to you from the future. That's absolutely spot on. So listen to everything I say today. Okay. (laughs) All right. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. So tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now. I think like many people, I fell into it in many ways. I think we all have these underlying principles that drive us, right? Like We all make career selections based on 
probably a whole lot of naivety. I mean, I certainly did, along with some things that you think you like and dislike. And so you start choosing a career. And for me, there were two main things. Number one, I was a bit of a weird eight-year-old or nine-year-old in that my parents handed me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And so I read that and At felt eight? really... Yeah, eight or nine. Yeah, around there. Yeah. You're an anomaly. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And so if you asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would answer entrepreneur. I couldn't say the word. I would stumble my way through it. It's a tricky word for an eight-year-old. But uh, that was my answer to everyone. You know, and they're expecting astronaut or fireman or pilot or whatever. Uh, But my answer was entrepreneur. And this is before the days of Shark Tank and all of those things where a lot of that's now being popularized. So that was a bit weird. And The other element was I realized through my teenage years that I have a distaste for monotony. I like variety. And I knew that I wanted to do something in the business, corporate kind of world, but I was really scared of doing the same thing over and over and over again. Like that idea petrified me to my core. And so the mix of those two things have come into play in an interesting way through my career. So I started my career in project management. And basically, I went through school, went through university, got a degree, did all that jazz, got the ticket to play. And then I started with a government agency. And in fact, I had a really interesting experience. So I was coming in for an interview and I had this funny thing. So this was a really old building, like sandstone, colonial style, which is about as old as Australian buildings get. We don't have that much history, only a few hundred years in terms of those kind of formalized buildings. And there was a formal entrance at the front, but then there was a side entrance. I didn't realize there was a formal entrance in the front. And so I turned up really nervous, you know, all dressed up, first time in the workforce, first time going for my big interview. And I follow a staff member in the side entrance and I'm looking at my papers and they're saying, go to level four for the interview. Level four, go to reception and they will take you to the place. And so all excited, I get in the elevator and it goes one, two, three, five. Oh no, you're kidding me. This is a cruel joke. What is happening here? I check it again, you know, do a double look. One, two, three, five. I'm, I quickly scramble out of the elevator and start going up the stairs. Level one, level two, level three, go up another set, level five. Where in the world is level four? Turns out this building had two wings and the wing I was in, there was no level four for some strange reason. Good part of the story was I asked some staff members, they took me to the right part and I won the role. So all was well, probably two morals to that story. Number one, turn up early to your interviews. Um, but number two, that kind of surprise has echoed through the rest of my career in terms of they thought that they would give me really, really clear instructions on go to level four, do this, do that, right? right? And yet I managed to find a way to completely circumvent it and surprise myself and get myself into a little hole with an elevator with no level four. And so there's been really interesting lessons coming through all the way through. Anyway, so I started with project management and delivered projects. In fact, I started overseeing projects. So they brought me in as a graduate in an area that oversaw a $20 million capital program. So I got to watch projects from afar. And the whole time I begged, give me a project, give me a project. I want a project. I want to cut my teeth on this. And they did. It was a small IT improvement one. And I made every mistake under the sun. I had to completely redo the entire thing with the development team, but got it delivered took twice as long as expected and 
twice as much money as expected and all of that jazz, but started earning some scars and started earning some stripes and then asked for another project. Thankfully, I got a bit better and it got to the point where I moved around a few different organizations and delivered bigger and bigger projects and my projects were being nominated for awards. There was one project in particular that we delivered five and a half times the scope in four months. We had four months to start it up and deliver it. They were expecting 100,000 items. We did 550,000 items in that same four-month period. So there are a lot of lessons that are starting to flow through that. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I'd try my hand at consulting. I sat there one day and looked over at a consultant screen, looked over at mine and realized that I could have a bigger impact consulting. So initially I consulting on other people's banners and I realized I was right. I could make a bigger impact and I could help more people through mm-hmm. consulting. But the issue I had though, was that it was all filled with so much complexity. It was all, we'll bring in this best practice from here, this methodology from here, this kind of thing. And it was lacking this real sense of pragmatism. I found in so much of this project change initiative portfolio program, I mean, there's a lot of interchangeable terms in this space. And I've, over my career, I've worn basically every hat there is to wear in this space from leading one and a half billion dollar portfolios through to delivering a little $10,000 projects and everything in between. And what I found was that there's just so much complexity and the industry has really narrowed it in to sell certificates and textbooks and things like that. So it's like, if you're a project manager and you're only focused on time, cost, quality, you're only delivering, that's kind of it. And if you're a benefits manager, you're only focused on the measurements. And if you're a change manager and you're only focused on the behavioral change. And what I found is that what's missing is this layer of change leadership over the top. Mm-hmm. And this ability to lead change holistically within mm-hmm. your teams, within your organizations, and do so in a way that's practical, that's simple, that makes sense, and do so in a way that you as a leader don't have to be an expert in all of the fields because you don't have time to go and get 30 different certifications in all of these industry niches. You need to know the core elements that really work. Right. And so that ultimately led to me writing a couple of books. And that led to me founding the Valuable Change Co. Because number one, I saw there was this intense complexity across the board that was ultimately undermining project results. And number two, I found that most projects that I saw across clients, across organizations were not achieving what they were meant to be achieving. There's some thinking up front in terms of this is our problem. This is the solution. Now let's go deliver the solution. But the the loop is never closed. Very rarely. There are exceptions, Mm -hmm. but very rarely it's closed. It's, all right, we'll come up with a solution. Let's just go get that done, put it in place. Awesome, we did it. And normally what happens is projects are long and hard and full of resistance. And Mm -hmm. so you end up just patting yourself on the back for getting it done rather than taking a breath or even better, monitoring throughout and saying, are we actually delivering what we are meant to be delivering here in terms of solving the problem and realizing the value and actually making a meaningful difference. And so the combination of those two things led to the Valuable Change Co and led to my books, which was very much, how can we rethink this? How can we put the pieces back together? And what are the core elements that every change leader needs to have and thinking about and driving forward to deliver ultimately valuable change and valuable projects and valuable programs? And I don't care what term you put in there, but how do we make sure that this risk and this effort that we're putting on How do we make sure it's actually valuable? And so that's what I do. That's what you do. 
I've written some stuff out and I realized that your disdain for monotony is your superpower because, you know, when you talk about the complexity of some projects, I think bureaucracy, you know, that it gets caught up in this web and it becomes monotonous again and again. And you do the same stuff over and over again, right? Expecting different results. But what you do is you go in there and you simplify and you get rid of the monotony, the bureaucracy, because you're seeing things from a different perspective. You're not in the picture, you're outside the picture and you're able to see. Yeah. In fact, in, in addition to that, it, I found the best way to counter that is I'm not a huge fan of these best practice methodologies. I think they're right. interesting ideas and I'm qualified in half of them. I mean, so I do know them back to front, but for an experienced practitioner, they're tools in the toolbox and that's great. That's totally fine there. You cannot take that away. But for someone who doesn't have the time or that isn't their specialist role or basically anyone that needs to incorporate this as part of their broader day-to-day, and this is very much the case for leadership, then the best way to drive this is not through these best practice methodologies or reading textbooks or anything like that, but rather it's to think about a few mental tools, a few ways of thinking about problems. And if you know how to think about the problem, you can come up with the solution nice and easy because the solutions are not rocket science. They're fairly logical. They're nice and simple. And I teach these tools to people and it help people solve their problems with these tools. And there's always good solutions because the good solutions are the easy part. You know, people worry about following this step, then this step, then this step. And I said, well, how about we just look at empathy? How about we just look at things from their point of view? Like here's a really simple equation. What are the key levers? What decision are we actually predicting here? Like, it's really simple mental tools and mental frames to actually arrive at the solution you need. And when you have them, you don't need big prescriptive best practice methodologies and frameworks and template sets where it's 300 templates. You don't need those types of things because people know how to think about the problem. Yeah. And best practice I find because I'm in the education space. So we get a lot of that. (laughs) Um, Best practice oftentimes is very outdated and we don't think to go back and refresh so that we can move forward in a more effective way. I'm all about effectiveness process and getting shit done. So when you spoke about the disdain for monotony, that hit my heart, my friend. (laughs) Um, So something super interesting to me is that your parents handed you this book at the age of Mm. eight and nine. Were your parents entrepreneurs? Mum wasn't. Dad kind of was, but I don't think it was a conscious thing. My mum was a teacher and later a principal in a local school. Dad, he was a salesman of construction products, mm-hmm. and he left that to start a business in commercial flooring. So I guess from the purest sense of the term, yes, he was. But I get the sense from my dad, and I could be absolutely wrong with this. Maybe he'll watch this afterwards and say, no, 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 that wasn't the case. <laughs> but I get the sense that in many ways, he fell into it as well. Saw the opportunity, went for it, got excited about it mm-hmm. and ran it. So yes and no is the answer to that one. But definitely, you were someone who learn to become self-aware at a very young age. The fact that you read the book and knew that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and the fact that as a teenager, you knew what you didn't like. We spend a lifetime trying to figure that out. You nailed it when you were young. So that was a great thing. Now, you spoke about some books. You Mm -hmm. spoke about your company, Value Change. So Mm -hmm. tell us how we can get some more information on what you do and how can I get your books Yeah, absolutely. So the book is Valuable Change, what you need to know to ensure your change pays off. So 
it's in any format that you could wish for. Hardcover, paperback, ebook, audiobook, Amazon. Fantastic. It's very, very easy to get across the world. The other book I've written is Creating High Value PMOs. If you know what a PMO is, then you probably will enjoy that book. If I say the word PMO, if you don't immediately know that that means project management office, then you probably don't need that book just yet. But Valuable Change is very much around how do we think about problems as a change leader and how do we build these elements? And it's full of these mental tools that I've talked about in terms of how do we think about the problems and how do we arrive at the solutions that we ultimately need to be arriving at and how can we make sure that what we do actually achieves what we're wanting Yes, and actually achieves what we're looking for. In the shortest Uh, amount of time with the highest efficiency. That's exactly (laughs) it. That's exactly. And that's what, I mean, you talk about simplicity and Simplicity is really nice because, well, there's two types of simplicity. There's near-side simplicity and far-side simplicity. So near-side simplicity is forged from naivety. Things are simple because you don't know any better. And that is full of mistakes, risk, and ultimately inefficiency. Mm-hmm. And then you go, to get to far-side simplicity, you need to get through a whole deep dive of complexity. And that's full of inefficiency. But this far sight simplicity, which is what I always strive for, that is where the true efficiency, as you said, you know, it's efficient, it's effective. That's what you're striving for. This far sight simplicity. It's I understand all of the complexities, ideally, or at least the key elements, or I'm learning from someone who does understand all the complexities. And I'm able to draw out the key core simple elements that I need to be truly effective and efficient. Beautiful. And so to be effective and efficient, what's your website? Valuablechange.com. So as a change agent, as someone who's into transforming Mm -hmm. organizations and people, what are some tips on how you can generate phenomenal change buy-in? Because buy-in is an important part of this process. Mm. You don't have buy-in, it's going to be really hard. So what are some quick tips you can give us for that? The fastest way would be, we need to be using empathy. And and you go, well, how in the world do I do that? So there's this really, really simple, I call it the value equation. And it's a really simple equation. Reward minus pain equals decision. It's based on scientific studies that were done around behavioral responses to pain. There were these researchers in Belgium a few years back, and they were looking at the human response to pain. And most of the literature to date had been humans don't like pain that makes sense. We don't like pain. And it was, we will do anything we can to avoid it. That was the rhetoric. Researchers challenged that notion. They said, no, I don't think that's the full picture. And so what they did, they got two groups, some groups of students, the first group of students, and we'll call them the group of poor souls. They hooked them up to a machine, which had a screen and basically a zapping machine. And they asked them to answer really simple questions. And every time they got a question right, they got zapped any guesses as to how many questions that first group did every time they got something right they got zapped correct how many questions were there i don't know so if there were 10 questions i would get nine of them wrong (laughs) that's exactly it right you learn you learn and and so what they found was that first group and this was very much the control group this proof that humans don't like pain and we will do what we can to avoid it they just stopped answering questions They'd either get them wrong or they would stop answering, but they didn't do that many questions. Now, the second group, we'll call them the well-remunerated poor souls. This group were hooked up to the same machine and fed the same questions, except the researchers did two things. First of all, they put a point counter on the screen 
Every time this group got a question right, they got a point. Now, the more points they got, the more money they got at the end of the experiment. And so there was this direct other component thing at play. Any guesses as to which group completed more questions? The second. Again, nice and obvious. Mm -hmm. This is really, Mm -hmm. really simple, obvious stuff. Mm -hmm. But what that meant was that it's not so much that we humans avoid pain. It's we humans avoid pain unless we have a good enough reason to endure it. And as a change leader, it's really important to keep that in mind because change is inherently painful for the vast majority. I'm a weirdo. I like the vast majority of change, but I'm the exception to the rule there. Majority of people do not like change and it is painful. And if you're upfront about that, do not come into change as a leader and think, look at all these amazing things we're going to achieve. It's smooth sailing. It's going to be great. And only look at the rewards. When you do that, you're essentially doing this with a blindfold. Look at it with both levers at play, reward and pain. Change is painful, but it can be rewarding. And when you look at it with both elements in play and you look at it from their point of view and and basically ask yourself for this group of impacted people, whether it's your team, whether it's finance, whether it's whoever it is, whether it's your customers, if you're changing something, ask what's in it for them, that's the reward, but also, and why does this suck for them? And then how can I maximize the reward and minimize the pain? And what can you put in place to do that? And when you are consciously thinking through the problem like that, you will intuitively start to come up with solutions because you'll go, oh, this change is great because of X, Y, Z. And I could probably do ABC to better communicate that or engage early or whatever. I could get their opinion in on this. And this change sucks for this group because of MNNOP. And what can I do about that? Well, I can start writing guides. I can engage earlier. I could train them better on it. I could do a tour around the country so they have companionship or support through it or whatever the case is. Right. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of understanding the problem to come up with a solution. And so the tip there, bringing this full circle, if you want good buy-in, think of it from their point of view. Don't sugarcoat it. What's in it for them? Why does this suck for them? Put it on a whiteboard and go, look, this is why I think this is cool for you guys. And this is why I think this is terrible for you guys. What am I missing? They'll give you some things and then help solve the problem. What do you need? How can I make this pain lighter? And how can I make these rewards even more meaningful for you? You ask those questions to everyone, you're going to get a very different response. And certainly a different understanding. You mentioned empathy in all that there's a lot of listening going on. In all Mm. that, there's a lot of questions that you're asking. You're not just assuming this is the pain, this is the solution. A leader, a good leader will ask those questions and try to figure out together because you give people a voice, you're giving them power. They'll have more control over how this pain lands for them. So that's a really smart move, my friend. It speaks to just adding value to people. So it's not a leader who knows all the answers. It's a leader who is able to extract some really great information from the people he or she leads. So powerful stuff. I love it. All right. So as a lifelong learner, Brendan, what are you learning right now? Yeah, I like that. What I'm actually learning right now is I'm listening to Andrew Huberman, the professor of neuroscience at Stanford. He's got a series of podcasts and and everything else. He talks about the circadian rhythm and how can we better basically be more effective, more focused throughout the day and sleep better at night. And so that's what I'm working on. That's what I'm learning. 
we know about the power of food, we know about the power of all these other elements, but it's the power of light and what light does for us in terms of energizing us and helping us sleep and all of those elements. From a personal point of view, that's what I'm playing with. From a professional point of view, what I'm finding really interesting, again, moving away from this idea of best practice is that change management and behavioral change there's some really well-established principles and how do we get people on the journey and everything else. And there's a lot of cliches, a lot of rhetoric, and I'm finding the vast majority, I'm not going to say it doesn't work. That's probably too blasphemous. It doesn't stick. It doesn't stay. And whether that's because of its complexity or whether it's something else, I'm still exploring exactly why it doesn't stay. And there are people that are fully trained change management uh, practitioners and they come in and they go, all right, cool. This is everything. We're going to run this. And the vast majority of the time, organizations don't pick up and run with it. And what I'm exploring is, number one, why exactly that is. I think it's got to do with the complexity and I think it's got to do with the theoretical nature of it. But what I'm looking to for solutions in that space is I'm actually looking at sales and marketing. How do we sell to customers? Why do they adopt things? And they're happy to adopt things. As a customer, we are voluntarily adopting something. And so we should be looking at sales and marketing rather than these change management rhetorics in terms of getting people to do things differently within our organizations too. And so that's something I'm already pulling a lot of principles and core elements in and finding that it's already resonating with my research to date. But that's the thread I'll be pulling for the next six months. So that's interesting. What about social emotional skills? Maybe some things don't land because people have had this way to sabotage things. Maybe things don't land because their connection and communication isn't good. So no matter Mm -hmm. what you bring to the table, if the sales isn't talking to production in a way that's healthy, nothing's going to land. It doesn't matter what you train in. Yeah. I call it momentum and culture. I dive into that a bit in my book, but essentially you're right. There's dynamics in play around hope and energy and, and a few things. But what's interesting is if you look at it from a marketing or sales point of view, essentially there's layers of trust. And every change needs to progress through layers of trust and kind of have freezing cold. I don't know what this change is, or I don't care, or I don't like it, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's those elements, freezing cold. And if you think about how you buy anything, you go, oh, I've seen that thing on an ad somewhere. It's in the car. Like, let's say, you know, we were going to buy a new, we'll choose Mercedes. Why not? Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's say we're going to buy a new Mercedes car and you go, oh yeah, I'm aware of Mercedes, but I've got no interest. And then all of a sudden an interest, there's a trigger of some sort or whatever else, but all of a sudden there's an interest. And so that's the first layer of trust. You go, okay, I'm now interested in this. And then you normally go through a degree of research or you gather information or someone gives you information through a sales guide or a sales rep or or whatever it is. And you get to a level of essentially belief where the interest is this could help. The belief is this is going to help. And then the final layer of trust, this is helping. And this is the new normal. And that's after you've bought the car. You've bought the car, Mm -hmm. you're living with it. You've learned how to adjust Mm -hmm. to it. And you're now living with it. And I mean, I don't like really formal stage processes and things like that. And so I'm in no way saying this is a stage process. But if you think about it in terms of this is how we humans adopt things. This is the path we generally go through. We show interest first, and then we develop a degree of belief and trust. And then ultimately we get to the highest level of trust, which is, yes, I have adopted this and it is working for me. There's a couple of nuances and I don't like this, but generally it's working for me. That's the flow. And we learn that flow best by looking at how we buy things and how we adopt things ourselves. 
like, you know, we buy new phones all the time. We buy cars every right. few years. We buy books. We buy this. And hopefully your listeners will buy a book out of the back of this one. Essentially, it's like a trust journey, but I really just like the word journey. There's a trust flow, right, that we move through to adopt things. And it's sales and marketing that help show us that. So even if your communication is poor, just means it's going to be even harder to get to the next level of trust. You still have to get to that point if you want voluntary adoption. I mean, the alternative is uh, you just say, I don't care about voluntary adoption. You go iron fist, you go, boom, this is how it is done in this organization. You either deal with it or you leave. That's the alternative. Clearly, the most effective leaders influence volunteers to take action. I'm so curious. This is completely off the mark, but why is it that you dislike the word journey? It's a really effective word, but it's overused. That's essentially it. There's a few words that I feel are way too overused and journey (laughs) is well on its own journey. What's an alternative word that you would use? (laughs) Flow, pathway, roadmap. There's a bunch of things and even those are on their way. So I probably need to go and grab a thesaurus. Oh, we can make um, up a word. I'm I'm a big fan of making up words. Me too, actually. There's a word that my wife and I use, hoobly-goobly. Okay. Um, Yes, that's when uncanny things happen. There's an uncanny, weird coincidence happening. We call that hoobly-goobly. Perfect word. (laughs) All right. So, Brendan, when you think of leadership today, what most concerns you and what are you most hopeful about? What most concerns me is really that complexity is seen as a proxy for effectiveness. And you see that a lot, you know, like these big consultant reports or, you know, complex best practices or these kinds of things. And hopefully we're starting to see a bit of a shift away from that. But at the moment, if something's simple and self-obvious, it's kind of discarded. It's like we've almost gone the opposite to Occam's razor, where it's like, if this thing isn't 30 pages, it can't be right. Or if this thing Mm -hmm. is 100 pages, it can't be right. That's probably the main concern. We need to give ourselves a breath away from complexity and go, what are the core elements here? What's going to give me the 80%? Because we're not after perfection, we're after success. And 80% is often going to get you that. And in terms of what I'm really hopeful about, this is less related to change and more about the way we work. This shift to virtual working and through the pandemic and everything out for everyone in the knowledge working field, the pandemic was really difficult for managers and leaders that like to micromanage. Very, very difficult for them because micromanaging virtual teams is difficult it is doable one of my best mates he had his manager through the first three months of the pandemic when we were all in lockdowns she was calling him 15 times a day every day but he left what i'm really hopeful about is this shift away from micromanagement and this shift towards Mm. greater trust in our working environments because when we have greater trust we tend to do better work the vast majority of the ones that I've seen is, and most of my clients, they have pulled back people back in, but not 100% full-time. The vast majority of them have shifted to a hybrid type, right. partially in, partially out, or there are other clients that are like, you can be completely virtual. And with that, leadership styles are shifting. Mm-hmm. There is less of an opportunity for micromanagement. And that excites me. That excites me as well. But you can take the micromanager, I guess, out of the office. Unless they change, they transform, they'll always be micromanagers. It's a matter of social emotional development, self-awareness, self-leadership to bring this forth. I mean, you you spoke about trust, you spoke about empathy, and I'm going to speak about the four-letter word that no one speaks about in companies, love. It comes down to that. 
Brendan, if you are certain that your leader cares about you, that your leader loves you, you will go above and beyond. And so as leaders, we need to really explore that in our leadership style, create that foundation of trust, because trust has to be the foundation in a good organization in leadership. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. Now, speaking of trust, I'm going to throw in a surprise question here. Do you feel safe? All right, here we go. So David Latin wants to know, what is one decision that you wish you didn't make? And what did you learn from it? Oh, that's, that's a tough one. It's tough because I'm of the point of view that you make the best decisions that you can in the moment. And a lot of them are going to be wrong. And that's the way you learn. I mean, the first thing that pops into my head here, and if I had another few more minutes, I come up with a much more profound answer, but I'll pull it from my very first project. This is probably quite nice because I think it echoes through the remainder of my career. My very first project, I talk about, begged for it, give me a project. And I told you it took twice as long. The reason it took twice as long was I actually delivered on time. I had the team, we did some specifications up front, we disappeared, we built what we needed to build and we delivered at the end. And when we were doing the presentation, this is what we've built, this is it, this is the new forms, this is the new process, the sponsor, the executive there, sat there and went, this isn't going to work, do it again. And that was the wrong decision. I built it in a black box. I disappeared and went, okay, I've got work to do. You know, come on team, let's go get this done. And I built it basically with no input and no pivoting and no opportunity for pivoting. I assumed that I had the solution right up front. And that was a very silly decision. And I was lucky because it was a really small project. So didn't have any real meaningful impact other than a bit more time and effort. And I was also lucky in that the executive was patient. Yeah. She was a mentor for me for a couple of years. That was great. But ultimately the wrong decision was building without input and assuming that I was right up front. And what I've learned from that is that's a very silly thing to do. Mm-hmm. We should be engaging. We should be playing back. We should be incorporating. We should be showing and telling. We should be communicating. And we should never assume that we got it right up front. And not being afraid to fail. When I think of your manager at that time, she let you fail. Oh, yeah. And that was probably the best gift she gave you. Yes. She wasn't micromanaging you. She let you stumble and do your thing. And I also appreciate her leadership because she let it happen. I love the fact that the sponsor didn't go off the handle and said, do it again. This right. is not going to solve so, the problem. And still believed in you. <laughs> That's exactly it. There was probably enough grace. young naivety there. And the <laughs> risk was low enough that she went, right. okay. As you said, yeah, enough grace as well. Enough Absolutely. Grace. So those three things went, okay, all right, try this again. Another two, three months. Let's do it better this time. Yes. All right. So as a listener of this podcast, Brendan, what's a question that you would like a future leadership guest to respond to? Like, what are you curious about? Yeah. So I really like this type of question. So I'm going to pass this forward. What are the top three recommendations that you would give to someone about to do your job? I love that question. I will certainly put that forward. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I think the takeaway from this is... Change is painful, but doesn't have to be complex, right? And as a leader, you're in charge of change almost every day. And sometimes it's big structured transformational change. And other times it's, oh, this client wants us to do something different or it's something far more every day. And Mm -hmm. 
My recommendation on that would be be really, really clear on why you're doing it. Think about what success is going to look like and use those two things to formulate what you have to do. And rather than doing it in reverse, rather than thinking about we have to do this and this is why, mm-hmm. take a breath, take a moment back and say, well, why are we doing this? How will we actually prove that we succeeded here? And then what exactly do we need to do? If you take that time up front, it'll save you a whole heap of grief down the line. So preparation. Yeah, preparation, (laughs) but in particular, value-based. Value-based preparation. You spoke about change being painful. Some change Mm. isn't painful, but change is certainly inevitable. It's going to come, Mm. right? The bottom line is that growth is optional. When change comes, it's up to us to figure out how we're going to grow and so even if it's painful it's seeing that other side that you so eloquently spoke about so i appreciate that thank you so much brendan it's been a great conversation have an amazing rest of the day and you too thank you for having me on in closing here's a quick message Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.